Please do have your Bibles open to the passage that I read to you earlier, Hebrews chapter 4. And our texts for this evening are those wonderful words at the end of chapter 4. Let me read them again to you. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace, recognising that you are abundant in mercy and abundant in grace. And Lord, we are in a time of need, and so we do pray that you would give us that in abundance, that you would enable us to see Christ through the preaching this evening, and that you would be glorified and that we would be built up. We pray even for those who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ for those who have been perhaps on the fringes for quite some time that you would draw them in by your grace this evening that you would save them from their sins for we pray this in Christ's name amen when it comes to voting in elections there are always certain traits and essential qualities that we're looking for in each of the political candidates that stand up for office. Uh, we look at the stance of the nominees on major moral issues. We think about how uh, they might bring certain experiences to office. But there is something else, isn't there? There's a feature that might often even uh, swing our votes. And that is what the candidate is like as a person. Uh, most of us want a leader who is truly uh, a man or a woman of the people, someone who, who lives in the real world, someone who, who knows and has experienced the, the general daily struggles and so is able to represent in Parliament the, the needs of the common person on the streets, people like you and me. And yet the reality is, as you will know, uh, a vast majority of those who rise to power are out of touch. They just don't know what it's like. And yet, as we turn to Hebrews chapter 4 this evening, we are confronted with a totally unique combination. Here is someone so unlike anything found in anyone else in all of history. We discover through the writer's description the ultimate balance between holiness and humanity. The perfect package of one who is high and lifted up, but one who comes near to us in grace and mercy. And we don't need to guess who this might be, do we? Because the text tells us in no uncertain terms that this is Jesus, the Son of God. Here we have his human name and his divine title, Jesus. He saves and the Son of God, his divine title. This is who we come before. And this is who specifically the book of Hebrews is all about. It's, or we could say even further, this is what uh, the whole of the Bible is all about. All of scripture is all about 
Jesus. That's the central theme and the focus of God's word. One old preacher put it like this. He said, Christ is in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In, in the epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. And so it is here as we dive into Hebrews chapter 4, the audience, these early persecuted Jewish believers are being brought to see who Jesus really is. And that's really been the theme of our Lord's Day. It's what we were considering this morning. Something of the intimate and personal nature of the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the good shepherd. The most intimate of occupations in the ancient world. Jesus is that to us as his people. And this evening we get another picture of who Jesus really is. In fact I want to speak to you quite simply about three things that everyone must know about Jesus. Three things. But what we see here is that the audience, as I say, these persecuted early Jewish believers are are men and women who, who know the covenants. These are people who are well acquainted with the Old Testament and the and the prophecies and the law. They the ancestors had, had faithfully passed down the message through the generations and the children were being taught it. And they themselves have have wonderfully become believers in the gospel. They've left behind their old life and they've entered into the new life that is found in Jesus Christ. They've become believers in the gospel. And yet, as I've mentioned, they're persecuted, they're suffering, like perhaps many of you are this evening. And their sufferings are so intense that they're almost enough to send many of them back to Judaism, back to the Old Testament uh, sacrifices and the Old Covenant, to even forsake Christ himself and to go away like sheep. And so the anonymous author of the book, uh, perhaps uh, Paul, but we don't know, uh, he puts pen to paper to both exhort and to encourage these struggling believers to, to stay on track. He's encouraging them not to give it up, but to press on in the faith, all on the basis that Jesus is better. If you wanted to give a subtitle to the book of Hebrews, you could give it just that. Jesus is better. That's the main line of reasoning all the way through. What we have in Jesus trumps Judaism. In him, there is this new and better covenant. You flick back to the opening uh, few verses of the epistle and there the declaration is being made right off the bat that Jesus is superior to the prophets. Again in chapter 1 and throughout chapter 2, Christ is greater than the angels. Or chapter 3, the writer uh, displays the superiority of Jesus to Moses, the lawgiver. But now as we come into the 14th verse of chapter 4, Uh, Another comparison is being made between between Jesus and uh, the Old Testament high priests. These final verses of chapter 4, they they really act as a kind of bridge. In light of all that has been said before, now as we move into this uh, chapter, this new chapter, and over the course really of the next six chapters, there is this familiar theme. You see, the writer, you couldn't deny it, he he knows his audience. He knows who he's speaking to. 
And he's connecting the dots, isn't he? Just like you do with children in those dot-to-dot books. You, you don't know what it is, and it looks just like a bunch of dots and numbers. But as you do it in sequence, suddenly the picture is revealed. And that's really what the writer is doing. He's connecting the dots of the Old Testament types and shadows. And bit by bit, he's revealing to them through this letter who Jesus really is and what he came to do. And he's telling them that the fulfillment of all that you have longed for is found in none other than Christ alone. Now, we're living in a different age and stage, aren't we? We're not early persecuted Jewish believers and yet we too in the 21st century here in Cardiff must be convinced as to who Jesus is we must know who we serve and who we worship and who has given us the hope of eternal life and as I say that's what I want us to do from these concluding verses of chapter 4 three things that everyone must know about Jesus firstly as we've already been seeing Jesus is a superior high priest. Jesus is a superior high priest. Have a look at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Uh, There was once a famous music conductor and he was orchestrating Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And uh, I wasn't there. But apparently it was a mesmerising performance. And after he had finished, the, the crowd rose to their feet with a thunderous applause. And as the clapping and the whooping eventually began to die down, he turned to the orchestra and he said to them this, Gentlemen, I am nothing. It was quite a statement to have made in light of the, the skill and the talent of this conductor. But then he said to them, and quite frankly, you are nothing. Beethoven is everything. Well, if we were to take those words and to slightly adapt them, we have something of the central message of our text here in verse 14, which is to say that I am nothing. Hope you're not offended by this. You are nothing. Jesus is everything. He far surpasses even the brightest and the best of men. He, he's on another level. You can't even put him on the same hierarchy. He's, he's on an altogether different scale. He's the divine. He's the son of God, as we've already seen. And, and we might fool ourselves into thinking of ourselves as great. We might have as a, an inflated ego. But in actual fact, we're, we're weak, aren't we? We're weak. That's what we'll go on to see by contrast in verse 15. We're not as strong as we might like to think. All it takes is one phone call. All it takes is one trip to the doctor's office. All it takes is one car swerving from its lane into your lane to confront you with the fact of your own mortality and weakness. So little can teach us how little we are. And yet here, the description of Jesus is quite different, isn't it? He's described as nothing other than the the great high priest. This is is unique and you've got to put yourselves in the original hearer's shoes. This This was totally unprecedented for the Jewish converts. That they can claim one who is who is better than Aaron and better than Melchizedek, and better than any successive high priest who who stood up to represent the people in the tabernacle and the temple. 
All other priests, no matter how high they stood, they were miniature by comparison to Jesus, the Son of God. If you know much about your Old Testament history, you'll know that there was always a a separation of powers in force. Uh, Today we've got a queen, but then they would have had a prophet and a priest and a king. And uh, there was a particular distinctive function within each of these posts. And yet, all the way through the New Testament, we see how Jesus the Messiah, this promised one, occupies all three of these ministry offices simultaneously. We don't need three Jesuses, but he in and of himself is the great prophet and priest and king. As prophet, he declares God's word to us. As priest, he opens up access to God for us. And as king, he operates as ruler over us. All of these positions fulfilled in this one God man. And nowhere do we see a clearer picture and description of the priestly ministry of Christ than we do here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Just to give you some insight into the role of a priest Perhaps you know this already, that the primary function of a priest was to act as a go-between. They were the middleman. They had this enormous responsibility of standing before God for the people. And look at verse 14, what we see here. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. This is more than just knowing theoretically that there must be a high priest out there somewhere far away in the distance. But we have a great high priest. He, he belongs to us. The one who has passed through the heavens. Just like a, a, an Old Testament high priest of Israel would have passed through the temple. And entered into the, uh, the temple curtain rather. And entered into the Holy of Holies. Where they would be in the very presence of God. To offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. To make propitiation for their sins. So in the same way Jesus the son of God. Who, when he had paid the price for sin, when he had done that work on the cross, when he said it is finished in his dying words, having hung in our place as the once and for all time sacrifice, he ascended into glory. He, he passed through the heavens, not through the veil of an earthly temple, but through the veil of a heavenly temple. It would have been a, a, a wonderful privilege For the old covenant community living under that Levitical system to have had a high priest who would mediate for them on that one specific day of the year, the day of atonement. But friends, it is a far more glorious thing to say today that we have a great high priest who sacrificed himself on the cross once and for all. And he didn't stay on that cross, but he rose from the grave. The greatest news that the world has ever heard came from a graveyard. Jesus is alive. And in light of all of this, we are exhorted, aren't we? Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. Some churches today, and uh, I was just speaking about this with some of our friends this weekend, might define themselves as a confessional church. A confessional church, and that's a great thing. Perhaps you are a confessional church. You hold to something called the doctrines of grace. Well, I believe that the writer is encouraging us to do something of this. Even today, 
that we are to hold fast our confession. If you're a believer here tonight, we've all come to Christ from different angles, from different walks of life, from different experiences. And we've all got personal stories to tell of how God has shaken us and shaped us more into the image of Christ. And yet our commonality, whether you're English or Welsh, is that we have a confession We have a confession that we can claim. And those saints that I was speaking about in the Philippines this morning have the same confession. They worship the same God. What a privilege it is to be a believer. And so the writer is saying here to his listeners, but by extension to you and I this evening, let us us hold fast our confession because the truth, it hasn't altered The truth doesn't have an expiry date. We don't claim Christ now and in a hundred years we'll be claiming something else. All the way through history, yesterday, today and forever, we will be singing the praises of Jesus Christ. It's why we can sing some great old hymns as well as some great modern hymns. And we can see that the truth is just the same. And so don't let go of the great high priest. It's my challenge for you this evening when the storms are raging in your life, when persecution comes for you as it did for these early Jewish believers, the truth that will keep you from being tossed about on the storms of life and shaken by sufferings is the holding fast, the clinging tightly to the reality that Jesus is the great high priest. But more detail is given as we move into the next verse. The first thing that everyone must know about Jesus is that he is a superior high priest. But secondly, and even greater perhaps, he is not only high and mighty, but, or rather not greater, but more comforting for people like you and me to know is that on the other hand, Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He's superior But he's also a sympathetic high priest. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. A a young boy uh, deeply missed his father while he was away on military duty. And so to comfort himself, apparently he would sit and stare at an old framed photograph of his father's face. But one day as he sat, he began to cry. And his mother, hearing the noise from the other room, rushed into the room to see what the matter was. And answering through his tears, the boy said, I just want daddy to come out of the frame. There are moments, there are sometimes seasons in our life where we feel that way with God, aren't there? There are there are times when we, when we read of his goodness and we sing of his grace, but it, but it just feels like he's in a frame, as it were. Feels like he's separated, that he's far away from our earthly existence. What does the writer have to say to you if you're feeling that way this evening? Quite the opposite. No, we have a God who was made flesh. A God who who came down to the little town of Bethlehem and was born of a virgin. Jesus, the Son of God, identified for us in verse 14, now in verse 15, has come out of the frame. We don't just sit and stare at an old photograph, but we see him in the Gospels, don't we? We see him interacting with with real people in real time. The transcendent God of time and space steps down into human history. 
And as we suffer, and it seems like nobody cares, we can look to Jesus and we can say, but he does. He knows. He is a sympathetic high priest. Many of those elite politicians that we spoke about earlier, they've never lived a day in our shoes, but Jesus has. In fact, he lived a whole lifetime in our shoes. As the hymn writer put it, we like to sing this at Christmas time, but it's a, it's a reality that we can sing all the year round. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Or if you go back even further, thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. And in fact, here in verse 15, we find a, a reality that can comfort not just those who are suffering, but it, every single one of us, whatever stage of life you're found in. But this is the running theme of the life of Christ. He is a sympathetic, great high priest. You see it in Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, all the way through the Gospels. Jesus is there with his people and he's, and he's healing the sick and he's giving sight to the blind and he's raising the dead and he's doing wonderful miracles because he cares. He cares. And in fact, in verse 15, we, we find two negatives that make one positive. Do you see that? Remember when I was preparing this sermon, I was reading that over and over again. And I was thinking, why have they put the knots in there? I thought, if you just take out the knots, then you've got something of this positive affirmation. We do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Sometimes we might be tempted to say to ourselves, well, does it really matter? Does it do any good at all to pray to a God who is way up there while I am way down here in the trenches of life? Does it make a difference? Is there any hope for us living in a fallen world, interacting daily with the world and the flesh and the devil? And yet the writer gives a resounding yes, it does make a difference. There is help to be found and there is hope renewed when we look at that our great high priest. Why? Because he sympathizes with us. That word sympathize doesn't mean just feel a little bit sorry for someone. Maybe you're walking down the street and you see there a, a homeless man, a woman sitting there in the rain perhaps, and you, you feel sorry for them, you, you sympathize with them, but you've got to get from A to B and you pass them by. Is that the kind of sympathy that Jesus has for people like you and me in our own pitiful, sinful condition? No, when, when Christ feels sympathy, it is an active sympathy. It means that he, he shows compassion. It means that his, his soul is, is moved with tender affection for his people. It means that he is touched for us in our trials with Great feeling. And when we feel weary and weak, when we feel low and let down, when we feel depressed and distressed, we only need to look up. And there is a sympathetic high priest. You think of how Jesus responded to the underclass, to the dregs of society, to the weak and the vulnerable, the nobodies. 
Well, these were really Christ's focus, as I've already pointed out. It's what earned him the title, which was really a slur from the Pharisees. Friend of sinners. Everybody knew it. It was so obvious to see that this was a man who interacted with people in a way that they never did. He was not like the leaders of that day, but he was a sympathetic leader. And it's what his parables majored on, isn't it? You, you trace the theme all the way through them. I've not come... For the healthy, but for the sick. Not the righteous, but for the sinners. To the woman with an incurable disease who reached out to touch the edge of his robe. He was reaching out to her, to heal her of her sickness. He had compassion for her. Why? An insignificant woman who could never repay him? Because he was and he is a sympathetic saviour. To the blind beggar at the roadside who called out for mercy, Jesus called out to him and gave him eyes to see and gave him a reason to live and gave him salvation so that he went home rejoicing. Why would he do that? This is a beggar. He doesn't have a penny to his name because he was and he is a sympathetic saviour. We could be here all evening looking at the many ways in which Christ displayed sympathy throughout his earthly ministry. But I wonder if like me, you are at times tempted to feel or even to say that that was all very well and good and true while he was here on earth, but he's in heaven now. He's in glory. That's the past. What about the present? Has that sympathy kind of shrunk and declined over time? And yet the answer that we get here could not be any clearer. An emphatic no. The Jesus of the Gospels is the one who is seated in heaven today and his heart has not hardened now that he has ascended into heaven. But he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God daily interceding for people like us. He's no less sympathetic with our weaknesses now than he was at the graveside of Lazarus. He's no less touched by our griefs today than he was 2,000 years ago. I love that the shortest verse in our English translation is Jesus wept. Doesn't that give you an insight into the heart of Jesus Christ? The ancient world knew nothing of a divine being who was sympathetic. In fact, you could well argue that the false religions and the false gods of our world today, they, they know nothing of a sympathetic deity. So what a wonderful privilege it is to know that the one true and living God, the risen conquering king, is at the same time a God who is filled with sympathy. And while we suffer on earth, Your heart and my heart resonates with the heart of Christ. But it's not just sympathy, is it? But it's also a knowledge of what it is to be tempted. Jesus knows how it feels to be caught in the crossfire of evil. He knows how it feels to to face the forces of darkness and to have the the very worst strategies of the devil leveled against him. Matthew chapter 4, 40 days, Jesus has been there in the wilderness He's hungry and thirsty and Satan slithers in to tempt him while he's at his weakest. But look at verse 15. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Temptation attacked, but it never conquered him. 
At times the pressure kind of seemed to mount up against him. But he never budged, not even a millimetre. He never lost. In fact, even his greatest enemies, even Pilate and Judas and the soldiers who who nailed him to the cross, had to admit that here is a saviour who is like no other. Here is a perfect man. You see, if there was even one small sin that was hidden away in the heart of Christ, he could not be a saviour. He'd be automatically disqualified. We'd struggle with assurance. But Jesus resisted the devil. He overcame temptation. He defeated sin. And you and I have hope today in the middle of our heartache of uh, the heartache of living in a world like this because Jesus is both a sinless and a sympathetic great high priest. But then we must finish off by looking at verse 16, because, because here is the application. These are, these are wonderful truths, but, but what does it have to do with you and me in the 21st century, living in St. Melons or nearby? What must we do in response to what we have heard, having seen the superiority and the sympathy and that secret little point that I made about the sinlessness of Jesus Christ as the great high priest. The third and the final thing that everyone must know about Jesus is that he is a super abundant great high priest. He's super abundant. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We were reminded this evening in our notices that we are, we must socially distance. And uh, you remember those days, it wasn't long ago that we were being told to stay home, to save lives. No, no hugging, no shaking hands, no, no, no close contact and warm fellowship. And yet Jesus, he calls us near. Not to stand sheepishly with the right amount of social distance, but to come boldly. To the throne of grace. Or as some versions put it. And I love this translation. Come with confidence. How does a, how does a son or a daughter approach their parents? Nervously? Do they come apprehensive? Do they shake in their boots? Well I really hope your children don't do that. If they've got a loving father and a loving mother. They come without fear. Knowing that they will always receive a warm welcome. They don't need to book a time slot and be put on a waiting list. They come without fear. My father-in-law was a professor in Hong Kong University. And he was greatly revered by his PhD students. But my wife used to come as a little girl into his office. Slam through the door, sit on his lap and pull his beard and whatever else. Why? Because that's my, that's my dad, that's not professor, that's, that's father. And so it is for you and for me. With reverence, we come to the father, but we do come boldly, knowing that we will always receive a warm welcome. We are not strangers, but we're sons and daughters. As the Lord's Prayer says, we come before him as our father. And the terminology here in verse 16 refers to freedom of speech. Tell it all. As John Newton puts it in his old hymn, Thou art coming to a king. 
Large petitions would thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. We, we don't come like a needy beggar, appealing from a well-to-do stranger. No, we approach him as a confident child coming to a loving father. We, we come to a king with whom all things are possible. It must have been quite a thing to have heard these words if you were one of those early Jewish believers. You see, when we read about thrones in the Old Testament, they are primarily places of judgment. And yet because of this great high priest whose blood has opened up for us a new and a living way to God, it is now a throne of grace. You see, the first exhortation in verse 14 urged us, let us hold fast our confession But now in verse 16, we must be moving forwards. We don't just hold our confession tightly and stay in our church bubble. But we're to to do something, aren't we? We're to to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. And we are also to go in another direction spiritually to the throne of grace. Let us come boldly, hold fast and draw near. And that means that we must keep drawing near. It's not a one-time thing, is it? But we must day by day come before God in expectant prayer. And so, in closing, having given exhortation, I want to leave you with assurance. Because what do we find at the end of prayer? Mercy and grace. In mercy... God holds back what we do deserve and in grace God gives to us what we don't deserve. I had a friend at seminary a couple of years back, a Sri Lankan brother who had twin girls and their names were Mercy and Grace. And I said to my wife, if we ever have twin girls, maybe I jinxed it. (laughs) We'll call them Mercy and Grace. We've got three boys instead. But these, you could say, are God's twin attributes, mercy and grace, these wonderful words, gospel words. And there is nothing that we can ever do in a million lifetimes that could ever merit such mercy and grace. We are undeserving, but we come before a super abundant great high priest who responds to us with a free and a constant flow in times of need. Maybe at times you feel like you just can't pray. You've, you've tried every avenue, you've exhausted your resources and you feel a bit ashamed to finally bow the knee before God and ask for his help. Perhaps you even feel tempted sometimes to feel that the Lord just is unwilling to listen and you don't feel his smile and, and, and you just you neglect prayer for that reason. Well, here the writer has reminded us of the things that everyone must know about Jesus. Yes, he is superior, but he is equally sympathetic. Yes, he is a God of of justice, and he's a God of judgment, and he's a God of wrath to those who will not believe. But for those who will, he grants mercy for past sins and grace for present trials. I wonder, do you find yourself this evening in a time of need? Do you find yourself in a time of need? Well, whatever your weakness, 
uh, whatever temptation has come your way, let us hold fast our confession and let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Amen.